This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 15th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Can governments give good nutrition advice or are they institutionally incapable of doing so? Terrence Keeley is a clinical biochemist and a visiting senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's also author of Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal. We spoke yesterday for a live Cato Connects program. This is a portion of that discussion. When did the government decide to first get into the business of issuing advice about what people eat? And, wh- and was, that a, was that a surprising thing when that happened? Well, it's been doing it for about 100 years. And for the first 70 or so years, it didn't say anything unusual or unacceptable. It said you know, to eat more fruit and to eat more protein. It was perfectly good advice. But in 1977... The government, uh, in the form of the Senate committee chairman, George McGovern, suddenly changed all that and started telling people to eat less, particularly to eat less fat. And that was one level wasn't surprising because America was then going through this terrible uh, epidemic of heart attacks. Uh, Around 1965, 1970, a third of all Americans who were dying were dying of heart attacks. It was a terrible and very worrying epidemic. So clearly people had to address that. But the specific advice they gave of eating less fat was was terrible advice and actually only made the matter worse. Uh, Let's start with uh, the food plate turned food pyramid turned uh, food plate. I believe we have some of these – some images of the old food plate here. For health, eat some food from each group every day. Uh, what do we have? Greens, green and yellow vegetables, oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, potatoes and other vegetables and fruits, milk and milk products, meat, poultry, bread, flour and cereals, uh, and of course, butter and fortified margarine. And then you move on through time and we get uh, this uh, image which where, the, where bread found, forms the foundation of this is, uh, this is a terrible image. This, of course, is the famous, the world-famous pyramid. And actually, you'd be better off inverting it if you actually did the exact opposite of what the government recommended uh, when it did that pyramid, you'd be healthier. So at the top of that pyramid, we have fats, oils, uh, and sweets. They say use sparingly. Above, uh, Below that, milk, yogurt, cheese, meat, poultry, fish, dry beans. Uh, below that, vegetables and fruit. And below that, forming the foundation, bread, cereal, rice, and pasta. But of course, that wasn't set in stone and that changed as well and we have a there's a more recent uh food pyramid here my pyramid steps to a healthier you grains vegetables fruits milk uh meat and beans so the the graphic may not be set in stone but the message from the government is still set in stone okay and when you looked at the last government message in 2015 it was still very much cut down on fats and eat um carbohydrates. To be fair, they didn't tell you, the government didn't tell you to eat more sugar, but it absolutely told you to eat more carbohydrate. And yet all the knowledge that we now have is that carbohydrate remains bad for you. And the bulk of your calories should actually come from vegetable oils, you know, olive oil, avocados, uh, coconut oils. These are the, the, the fuels that seem to do least harm and most good. Okay. So and they, these are very dense calories. They're dense calories, but the point is they're not carbohydrate. They're fat. And fat is actually good for you. Uh, vegetable fats in the main, of, of course not margarine, but vegetable fats, natural vegetable fats, natural vegetable oils are essentially good for you. So the government decided to – it was a bit of a rush – when they decided to uh, get into the business of offering nutritional guidelines. Can you walk us you, – you're working on a policy analysis that should be yeah. out fairly soon on this. But walk us through 
this history, I believe, in the 1970s of yeah. when the government decided we have to do something. It was actually disgraceful because McGovern, who chaired this committee, actually, George McGovern, George McGovern, the famous George McGovern, actually stated that yes, he admitted when asked. We just don't know all the facts. We don't actually know what the best advice to give is. But because of this terrible epidemic of heart attacks, we feel we must give some advice. And so we're going to give what we think is the best advice, even though we know we don't have all the facts in. That is actually a terrible way to proceed because what he was doing is he was putting the weight of the federal government behind one half of an argument because the nutrition community was actually pretty divided between those who thought it was carbohydrates and those who thought it was fats that were keep killing people and causing heart attacks. And in the not knowing which side to back, they decided to back one side rather than the other. And actually, they backed the wrong side and therefore did more harm than good. All right. So you say the wrong side. But uh, is there such a thing when it comes to nutrition as settled science, things that we – well, we know this one thing about like you have to eat food, for example. We know that that is a really good thing to do. But beyond that, is are there things that we know that we know are going to be true in 100 years about, about consuming food? No. I mean obviously you've got to have vitamins. Uh, and obviously, there are things called essential fats you must consume. And obviously, there are minerals you must consume. But the science of nutrition and longevity is incredibly complicated. And the truth is, we don't know. And that's another reason why governments shouldn't intervene, because nobody knows. And if the government does intervene and then give recommendations, that's going to give people the impression that the government actually knows what it's talking about. It'd be much healthier for the government to say, it's not our responsibility to interfere in an area where there is no settled science. Therefore, we have to leave it to the scientists to thrash it out if necessary in public. And we can only be uh, uh, innocent guide, guide on on the sidelines. Okay, so what was that initial advice? The initial advice was, as the pyramid indicates, eat less fat and eat more carbohydrate. And that was based on a completely inadequate understanding of what fat and carbohydrate did to blood cholesterol levels. It was absolutely true, there's no question, that if you ate animal fats, your blood cholesterol levels went up. Uh, but when and this is really a disgraceful story. By 1977, when the advice was given uh, to eat less fat because of these experiments that showed that animal fats raised blood cholesterol levels, there had actually been no fewer than six carefully controlled trials where people had been put on low-fat diets and their blood cholesterol levels had in fact fallen, as predicted, but their life expectancy did not increase, i.e. the model was inadequate. Because we now know there are at least three different types of cholesterol. There's the really good cholesterol, which we call high-density lipoproteins. There's the, the neutral cholesterol, the large LDLs, so-called, and the dangerous cholesterols, which are the small oxidized LDLs. And we now know it's the carbohydrates that raise the dangerous ones. And so the government, even though they actually had no fewer than seven trials, six trials showing that low-fat diets did not increase life expectancy, still recommended that people did that. All right. Uh, we have a question here. This is from Matthew Feeney, one of our colleagues. And he asks, uh, why after decades and decades of research do scientists still not have a comprehensive answer to the question, what should I eat? And part of that presumably is that uh, as you and I were discussing before uh, we started this program is that it takes a long time to find out what the effects of eating some foods are. Look, it's really complicated. No one should pretend that food research is easy. Um, it takes years for experiments to pan out to see if you change one thing, 
does that alter life expectancy? Don't forget, you can't change things in isolation. If you ask people to eat less of something, they're going to eat more of something else. And so you don't actually know which is cause and which is effect. Um, and, and the other very great complication that we now understand about food research is that, well, the whole of research, scientific research in the world today is going through a crisis. It's called the crisis of reproducibility. We now increasingly understand how scientists in the face of a mass of data engage in what's called p-hacking. They produce a mass of data and, and, they, and almost without knowing they are biased in favor of certain results rather than others. They pick the data that suits and they publish that. And food research is particularly prone to that because you can't do control experiments. You can't have a placebo for lunch or placebo for breakfast because you can't do that experiment. And so food research is doubly complicated because the very best experiments are denied you, the ones with the placebos. And you actually rely in the, in the end on the lack of bias of scientists. And that's asking probably more uh, from humans than, than is fair. Is that is the bias, the fact that that bias is tolerated, is it partially a product of the fact that it is very hard to do or almost impossible to do these uh, double-blind experiments? It, it's not tolerated. It's positively encouraged. You try to produce a paper, as we, we could see in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you try to produce a paper in the 70s, 80s or 90s which said actually – uh, fat is good for you and carbohydrate is bad for you, you couldn't get that paper published. You wrote a grant application, you couldn't get that funded. The world, the scientific world, had absolutely fixed on a particular model and they crowded out uh, heretics. So it's not just a matter of uh, being permitted, it's actually being discouraged. All right. So you, uh, when the government began issuing its advice in the late 1970s, and we have a, a chart here detailing of the percentage of obesity – uh, the consumption of carbohydrates, uh, consumption of uh, uh, energy, calories here. Explain what to us what we're seeing here. Well, it's very simple. If you look along the bottom, that's those are the years. Let me put my glasses on. <laughs> so you have 1960 on the left and 2000 on the right. And in the 70s, you suddenly see this um, emergence, this theory that we should now be eating more carbohydrates. And, and as you can see, the blue line, the carbohydrates go up and less fats. And so the fat, which is the black line, goes down. And what happens to obesity, which is the red line, and what happens to total energy intake, which is the uh, green line, they both go up, i.e. as people were told and obeyed orders, people did as they were told. They started eating less fat and more carbohydrate. They got fatter in themselves, partly because they actually ate more food because carbohydrates make you more hungry uh, and partly because carbohydrates, in fact, directly make you fat with the effects of a hormone called insulin, i.e. it was all extremely bad for you. Okay. We have a question here from uh, Mark McCoskey. Mark asks, uh, is ketogenic and intermittent fasting the way to go? Now, I know there a lot of my friends do paleo. A lot of my friends do keto. A lot of my friends, they don't eat – they just don't eat grains of any kind. So Mark is asking here about keto and intermittent fasting. Well, the answer fundamentally is yes. Um, these are essentially the right way to go, but it's very important not to go to too many extremes either. Part of the problem and part of the danger is that people lurch from one extreme to another. A balanced diet, certainly if you can avoid three meals a day, I mean breakfast really is a dangerous meal because if you can try to focus your eating to just an eight-hour window every day, 
uh, and therefore cut breakfast out. We know, there's very good evidence that that's more healthy. But the other thing is that breakfast itself is dangerous because it makes you more hungry and you tend to eat breakfast at a time when the body is ill-prepared. So to answer your question, a keto diet implies, of course, a very low-carbohydrate diet, which is very good for you. Low-carbohydrate is good. And intermittent fasting implies these time windows, and they are also good for you. So to answer your question, the answer basically is yes, but nothing should ever be done in too extreme a fashion. All right. So uh, what are the big decisions that people make? You argue people should not eat breakfast at all. Uh, now, but let me qualify that. Uh, you know, when I, you and I have talked about this in the past, you've said, well, some eggs are fine. Well, let me just first start, and this is really disgraceful. There has been a proper campaign, a propaganda campaign for over a century to tell us that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. There's a propaganda campaign to say that we should eat breakfast like kings, lunch like princes, and eat supper like paupers. This is a propaganda campaign, and you can be damn sure who is funding it. You look at the papers that say that breakfast is good for you, and almost without exception, they're funded by one of the cereal companies or by a bacon company. That tells you at once that this is actually very, very bad science. Um, the reality is that if you must eat breakfast, and some people just are hungry in the morning, then you should avoid the carbohydrates. You certainly shouldn't be eating cereals or oatmeals. But if you're going to eat an egg or low-sugar fruit, low-sugar fruit like strawberries or blackberries or yogurts or sour cream, that's going to be good for you. But what I'm really saying is not don't eat breakfast. Some people are hungry in the morning. But don't eat breakfast because you feel you should because somebody in the background is manipulating that by propaganda that's not based on science. All right. We have a question here from Facebook Live from uh, Michael Smith. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's more of a comment, really. Uh, confusion on nutrition in the setting of digestive tract paralysis, gastroparesis, and chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. Nerve and muscle damage to the digestive tract causes difficulty in making the right choices over time. Uh, severe changes in what to eat uh, have caused confusion. 20 years ago, Gatorade to maintain electrolyte levels was great. Now horrible. Eggs were horrible. Now possibly great. Uh, makes gut rehab after total parental nutrition difficult. Uh, and this is of particular interest to me. We're, and he adds, we're still trying to understand what role the gut's microbiome plays. It's like there's a, there's a whole lot of new science. This is uh, a really important point that's been raised by this point. You're absolutely right. There's an increasing understanding that the bacteria in your gut are very important and really do affect your health. It's certainly true that eggs 20 years ago were terrible. Now we know, we actually know that eggs are in fact good for you. To be fair to the more recent science, science has had to be done in the face of all the propaganda, has had to be done to really high standards. So we now know that eggs are good for you. And actually, I would say that the American Heart Association and uh, one of the other big charities associated with the American Heart Association did put out very good advice about two years ago on what diets should look like. And we basically now know, and this actually is pretty solid information now, that the healthiest diet you can go for is a Mediterranean diet. A Mediterranean diet, which by definition is, comes out of the Mediterranean, the European Mediterranean, is a diet where people tend not to eat breakfast. You go to Italy, people don't eat breakfast. A uh, diet full of olive oils and vegetables, very low in dairy products and very low in meat. A Mediterranean diet is good for you. The issues that you've talked about specifically uh, coming down to the gut biotome, you're absolutely right. But we are beginning to understand how indeed even that should be regulated. Uh, Brett Wagner asks a question on Facebook Live. Brett, thank you for the question. Isn't this market-driven to some extent? Carbs are cheaper than animal proteins and, and fats. 
if my alternative to processed carbohydrates is so much more expensive, aren't I likely to choose the alternative good? Uh, many don't even consider nutrition. They consider cost and taste. Well, that, of course, was said by the great English socialist writer George Orwell in the 20s and 30s. And he pointed out that the poor people in England in the 20s and 30s were eating a very unhealthy diet, basically buns covered in icing sugar uh, as, as comfort foods. And this, of course, was extremely bad for them. But actually, if you look at food today, the share of income we spend on food is really low. All foods, even meats, even proteins, even butters, even fruits and vegetables, they're all st astonishingly cheap. I mean, there was a time 100 years ago when almost all household income went either on housing or food. Now it's, what, less than 10%. So food is actually very, very cheap indeed. To go for the really cheap option rather than the reasonably cheap option is just to damage yourself gratuitously. So I would actually disagree with you very, very slightly. I'd say that all food is cheap. Some food, of course, is more comforting than others. Of course, you're right. But it doesn't co cost that much money, actually, to eat a reasonably healthy diet anymore. Uh, there is a report I just saw or a, a news story I saw on uh, CNN recently, and it was uh, FDA moves to revoke soy health claim. And they uh, make a note here, uh, one of the uh, people, one of the physicians, a cardiologist that they talked to, she says there was never any, there were never any clinical trials ever that showed eating more soy improves heart health. So, with respect to health claims that the government allows or the government uh, makes itself, uh, how does that happen? Well, the soy claim probably came about. Um, you've only just shown me this, so I haven't had time to do the particular research, but almost certainly came about because people who replaced animal meat with soy almost certainly got a lower level of cholesterol in the blood. But that does not mean they lived any longer. This is really important to understand there are good cholesterols as well as bad cholesterols. It's a very complicated story. And I think what's happened, in fact, I'm sure that what's happened, although I can't prove it because as I said, I don't actually have the material in front of me. But almost certainly what happened, studies came out showing that people who ate soy instead of meat had a lowering of cholesterol, and so people recommended soy. But then when they went on to do the studies to be the only important study that actually matters, does soy actually make you live longer or healthier? The answer is no. Uh, and therefore, the claim has been withdrawn by the government. In a sense, that's just how nutrition science works, and we have to live with that. Uh, Alex Wellman asks, although he didn't tag didn't tag us here, uh, he says, it pains me to say this, but I do sort of miss the standardized nutrition label we have in the U.S. I always have to squint and search to find the sugar content in where he is in Estonia, even if the food almost always has less. Well, all I can tell you is if you think that the U.S. food labels are helpful – you should look, and again, I'm not trying to make a cheap national point here. You should look at the British labels, which is much, much more helpful. I actually find American nutrition labels relatively unhelpful because they tend to be defined in terms of portion size or other non-standardized metrics. In England and other parts of the European Union, it's simply per 100 grams. And it's very easy to compare different food types under those circumstances, and you definitely get more material. So yes, I don't know what goes on in Estonia, and uh, I'm sure the American system is better, but you could, be, you could get even better than the American system if you really wanted to hit food hard. Talk to me about how uh, what the, the politics uh, and some of the public choice uh, questions that are raised here about nutrition and government nutrition advice. I assume that there's a lot of politicking 
and uh, a lot of infighting behind the scenes with the FDA and food producers and USDA about what goes on to those labels and about what research is going to be accepted and what research is not going to be accepted when it comes to allowing or disallowing health claims about some foods. You're so right. It's a complete nightmare, actually. There's a very good professor called Marion Nestle in New York who's published a series of books on the subject. And she has shown, for example, how... Well, let me give you a specific example. The food producers were so worried after 1977 when it was clear that the government was going to start, the federal government was going to start recommending people to eat less, that they demanded and got a promise that all dietary advice in America since 1977 has been given jointly by two agencies, one of which is the USDA, the other one is human health. This means that all government food advice in this country is goes through the filter of an agency, the USDA, that exists to protect farmers and producers. Marion Nestle tells stories, for example, of how it is impossible to get that agency ever to agree to the statement, eat less meat or eat less food, because they are so much in hock to the, the producing community. On top of that, there's very powerful lobbying. I mean, these producer groups have huge power and huge money. Um, they're able, for example, to get tariffs and subsidies to their own people, costing the federal government, the taxpayer, huge sums of money. And this is just part of their campaign to protect the health of farmers uh, to some extent uh, to, uh, at the cost of the health of other people. So, yes, these are hugely disputed claims. It is very difficult out of them to get a true story of what is really going on. This is really a matter of balancing lobbying groups. With respect to uh, breakfast, the big problem uh, and one of the key drivers of your advice is that what American – this is from other news sources saying what Americans eat for breakfast is – Dessert. It's a disgrace. And, but and more than that, <laughs> Americans, uh, you argue, feel that it is the right thing to do to eat breakfast. So this is less of a policy uh, point here, but discuss why uh, a carb-heavy breakfast is something that uh, is counterproductive to people who are trying to trying to manage their weight. It's a genuine tragedy. I was in staying in a hotel just the other day. What, in America, watching breakfast and people were, were there making their waffles and they were getting their cereals and they were putting on the sugar and they were eating the toast. It was a carbohydrate fest with the honey and I mean it was a, a sugar fest. If you eat carbohydrate in the morning, sugar levels go up, sugar levels go down and when the sugar levels go down, that tells the body you're hungry. And so the irony is that by eating breakfast, you'll end up eating more during the course of the day. The myth is that by eating breakfast, you'll be full and therefore you'll eat less. Every single study shows that simply is not true. Eating breakfast makes you more hungry. On top of that, mornings are the most dangerous time of day to eat because the hormones that wake you up in the morning, things called cortisol, actually make you resist sugar and resist insulin also. So these are the things that are most likely to precipitate insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So breakfast makes you fat, and it also gives you diabetes, which are the two epidemics we're suffering from. And what is really criminal about it is that 99% of people believe that they're owing it to themselves to eat breakfast. They think they're doing themselves good. They're doing themselves wholly bad. And the analogy I would use is if you go back to the 30s and 40s, 
you could see advertisements for cigarettes, which suggested that cigarettes were positively good for your health, cleared the chest or something like that. Well, we're in that world now with breakfast. We are being told it's positively good for you. It is as bad for you as a cigarette. So uh, if, we're, if we see a health claim published in the press and it says X is shown to improve why, like wine perhaps is maybe good for your heart or as we heard with uh, soy that, that it was good for your heart and now they've withdrawn that health claim. What should we be thinking when we see that like a, a particularized health claim about a specific product helping a specific uh, condition or risk factor? When I read a paper like that or in the newspapers, I don't like to sound like Donald Trump. But what I say to myself is, why is this lying bastard lying to me? Or how is this lying bastard lying to me? No one should believe that a scientific paper is in any way definitive. It's as if you're listening to the arguments of the counsel for the prosecution or the counsel for defense. But not both. <laughs> That's the job of the judge. And the trouble is we need people to be judges. And again, I hate to sound like Donald Trump, but we do actually need from the media more discriminating uh, reporting of these things. We do actually need someone to say before this stuff appears on the front page of the newspapers, actually, this was only an association. It wasn't a double-blinded trial. Actually, the chances of this being true are pretty slim. But unfortunately, it's in the interest of the newspapers who are trying to sell newspapers to make the claims as interesting as possible. So people buy the paper, people read the article. And so there's a, uh, a not a conspiracy because we don't live in a world of conspiracies, but there's a mutuality of interest by which um, as um, one of your secretaries of the Treasury once said, it's in no one's interest to stop the party and to take the punch bowl away. And I'm afraid that if you want better food advice, somehow you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for people to be much more critical to interpret these papers for the public good. So like a Consumer Reports or a Life Extension magazine or something like that, that would be not beholden to any particular interest, but very interested in constantly grinding through all that research. Yes, absolutely. So there is, for example, something called the Cochrane. Um, it, it, Cochrane is a body, um, it's a collective body in the world of science that looks very carefully at these claims and every now and then across the field of science, medical science, puts out these really good reports. We need something much more like Cochrane to be much closer to the consumers in America today. Does uh, the fact that the government is engaged in this process of providing that advice, does it crowd out more opportunities for that kind of uh, information to be more readily available? Or do consumers, broadly speaking, just not care that much about that kind of information? Well, that is such a good question. I'm, I think I'm afraid that government advice has been really damaging. It has crowded out. One thing it's crowded out is a debate. The moment the government lays down a particular story, there's a strong temptation for the scientific community to crowd out behind it because that's where the government grants are going to be, that's where the money is going to be, that's where the promotions are going to be. And so when government steps in, it, it, it hugely reduces the debate that's taking place and that itself is very damaging. The other thing is that people believe government. There's somehow this myth that somehow the government, you know, like God sitting on the cloud, is only interested in neutrality and truth. It's not true. George McGovern 
I mean, he wasn't a bad man in any ways, but he had his own very strong interests to pursue in 1977. His career was coming to an end. Um, he wanted to jump onto a bandwagon by which he might be re-elected as a senator, which he failed, by the way. He was looking for good things to do. Uh, and therefore, he, cut, he, he, he short-circuited good science for bad science because it was in his interest as a careerist, or he thought it was. So you can't rely on government. And we'd be better off not having government so people didn't think there was a false authority so could then people could look at each individual authority in a more objective way. Terence Keeley is author of Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal. He's also a visiting senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>